Hi, We the People listeners. I'm Lana Ulrich, Senior Director of Content at the National Constitution Center. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. Last week, the NCC traveled to Berkeley, California, where Jeff joined best-selling author Michael Lewis for an event at Berkeley Law. Jeff and Michael moderated conversations with current and former judges on the human side of judging. The judges shared candid commentary about how they approach their work and the challenges they often face on the bench. This episode was originally published on our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, which features live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. Jeff will be back next week for a regular weekly show of constitutional debate, and we'll review the 2018-2019 Supreme Court term. So we'll see you back here next Thursday. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Last week, America's Town Hall traveled to Berkeley, California, where the National Constitution Center partnered with the Berkeley Judicial Institute to host conversations on the human side of judging. Current and former judges explored what it means to be a judge and candidly discussed the challenges they faced in their work. The first panel featured moderator Michael Lewis, best-selling author of Moneyball and The Big Short, and host of the podcast Against the Rules, in conversation with Justice Eva Guzman of the Supreme Court of Texas and Judge Charles Breyer of the United States District Court for the Northern District of California. The second panel was moderated by NCC President Jeffrey Rosen, who sat down with Berkeley Judicial Institute Executive Director and former U.S. District Judge Jeremy Fogel, former Associate Justice of the California Supreme Court, Carlos Moreno, and former Chief Judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, Danelle Reese Tatcha. Here's Michael Lewis to get the conversation started. Michael Lewis. Thank you. Are we... Can you hear us? Is this good? All right. So I, I'm utterly unqualified to be here. I mean, I am here because of the, I, I met Jeremy through this podcast. And the podcast was about umpires and referees in various walks of American life. And one of the episodes was about judges and just examining the various forces that were coming in on them that might undermine their authority and make their lives difficult. Um, otherwise, I know very little about the law except to run from it. Uh, <laughs> so I'd like, to, I'd like to start by just... I want you, I'd love you each to introduce yourselves and what you do, where you are, uh, to the audience. And, uh, go ahead. Yeah. All right. The federal judge is making me go first, so I'll go <laughs> first. <laughs> so you heard I'm Eva Guzman. I have the, uh, the, the great privilege and pleasure of serving on the Supreme Court of Texas. It is the highest civil court in Texas. I've been on the court since 2009. I uh, served on an intermediate appellate court before that for about a decade and initially uh, entered the judiciary as a trial court judge appointed by uh, then Governor Bush. Uh, My journey has been marked by first, first Latina on the trial court in Harris County, first Latina on the intermediate appellate court, and first Latina elected to statewide office in Texas. And uh, it's, it's a job I enjoy. And, um, and you received more votes than anyone has in the history of Texas. 
Well, since you brought it up, yeah. <laughs> Texas elects its judges. That's riddled with, with all sorts of uh, cons and, and a few pros. But um, the last election, 2016, I did become the highest vote getter in the history of the state of Texas for any office, anytime. Who voted for you, Chuck? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't have an election. <laughs> <laughs> Which I actually thank my lucky stars when the first case that I had uh, was a case uh, involving uh, a fellow by the name of Ed Rosenthal who had a, what's called the Oakland Cannabis Club. And it was a case that ultimately went to the United States Supreme Court where they uh, prosecuted uh, people who had uh, manufactured and distributed uh, marijuana. It turned out that that Rosenthal uh, had uh, had this had been authorized by the city of Oakland to be the official grower uh, of marijuana. Okay, fine. The feds decided that he ought to be prosecuted because of this thing called the supremacy clause, and uh, and he was prosecuted uh, in my court. It was the first case uh, that I had as a as a trial judge, and believe me. I thank my lucky stars that I wasn't up for election. Uh, it turned out that he was convicted, uh, ultimately, and I sentenced him what I thought was appropriately, which was uh, one day in jail, credit for time served. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, that was that case. But it highlighted for me, and it would be a fascinating discussion, about uh, what... What does the independence of the judiciary do to the individual judge who doesn't have to be concerned about being popular? Uh, uh, you know, the, the fact that you got the most votes actually is the best thing I've heard about the elections uh, <laughs> uh, process. But I would be concerned. I would be concerned, and there are a lot of examples that we can give, even in California even in California, uh, about judges who render unpopular decisions and then are voted out not because that judge didn't do his or her job, but because that judge uh, uh, rendered an unpopular decision. And uh, that, since I thought we are talking about stress, that'll give you stress, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you that. So, so I want to do with you, both of you, what I did with Jeremy when I first sat down with him, because it's it's you don't it's not obvious how a person becomes a judge. Uh, you and it, the the social role is so powerful. You once you're the judge, that's all you are. But once upon a time, you were you know little kids uh, with with other with other ambitions in life. And so just just like could you just start by explaining how? And Ava, you start you start here. Just how you become a judge. Uh, how this happens, and is it is there anything in your past that sort of led up to it where he, he said, yeah, this all made sense, it made an awful lot of sense that I ended up here? Well, you know, and everybody has a different path and a different journey, but it's, uh, in do the they? end, I, I think they do, and, and people come, you know, so there are people sitting in the audience right now that are law students that know they're wanting to be a judge, and they're, that, you know, that's their goal. That really wasn't my goal. I didn't see myself in the judiciary, but it was a little serendipity, a lot of hard work, and in the end, it's public service. So I'd been doing, as a young lawyer, I served on a grievance committee, I did a lot of community work, and there were a lot of ways where I engaged with the community. A judge passed away, 
And I had four or five people come to me and say, you know, you ought to apply for this job. It's political in Texas. I was a political. And they already had 30 applicants for this particular vacancy. So I thought, well, why not just go ahead and do it? Because, you know, the odds are really against you. And, but I did. Is it going to reject you? Yes. <laughs> um, no, do it because it was, an, it was an opportunity. Right. And you, just, you, you have to take those risks. And so I did. And so I, and you know, you, I think any lawyer sitting in the courtroom and you're watching the judge and you're, you know, I could do that job so much better. <laughs> so, but actually, in this room, that's, that's what they say in my court all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I want you to actually back up just a little more before we get we jump forward into what you're doing on the bench. Um, I grew up in a house. My father was a lawyer and told me to run as far as fast as possible away from that the profession. He was he was a lawyer. Wished he was something else. How did you get interested in the law? I mean, that's that's a great question. Yesterday I was. Um, and I'm from a very working class background, but yesterday I was um, in the airport and it was late and I, I walk in the, in the ladies room and, and I see the custodian and she's on her knees, you know, cleaning. And, I, and I'm, just, I'm thinking about coming up here to be interviewed by the Michael Lewis. There are lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought about my mother. I'm one generation away from that life. And she was a custodian at the University of Houston where all her kids went to college. And so that, that just kind of came back to me. So that's my background. So when I thought about the law, why do I want to be a lawyer? For me, it was to make a difference. It was to really go back and, and engage with people that grew up like I did who are invisible, and I would see them as a lawyer in ways that other people wouldn't. So it was justice, you were social justice that interested you. It was, yeah, it was making a difference. Chuck, how did you get into this? <laughs> I'm, I'm, that's a tough story to follow. No, no. <laughs> uh, because uh, I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, I failed at that. Uh, well, it was during Vietnam, and you had to. You, I, I succeeded in college in that, and then I wanted to go out and 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 see whether I could actually make it as a uh, as an actor. And uh, uh, the problem was that you'd be drafted. Uh, so my father, who was conservative in that regard, uh, said, you better go to law school. So I ended up here. And uh, at the end of the first year, I was really unhappy uh, at law school. I couldn't, didn't like it, didn't like what they did. I didn't find it particularly interesting. And I said, I'm quitting. That's it. I'm just quitting, and I'll, I'll figure out what I'm going to do. And he said, well, before you do that, why don't you work as a uh, law clerk uh, to a personal injury lawyer? A lawyer by the name of Marvin Lewis in San Francisco, and just follow him around. Well, that's what I did. And I went to depositions, and I went to trials, and I thought, my goodness, this is fabulous. You write the play, you act in the play, <laughs> you direct the play, you produce the play, you know? And there's generally some kind of audience. <laughs> That's actually what I got as a judge. I got my audience. Uh, uh, but indeed, I have to tell you, uh, uh, 
what I would say to people, I mean, and I think really to answer your question, what does it take to be a judge? It takes luck, uh, among other things, and it should never be downplayed. I mean, federal judges always say, what does it take to be a judge? You have to know a United States senator. That's what it takes to be a judge. But I think, actually, it takes luck, among other things. So how did luck play with me? And I will tell you that, uh, uh, that I think that because I had so many different experiences, uh, I was a prosecutor, I was a Watergate prosecutor, I was a, uh, a defense lawyer for 25 years, I did all sorts of different things. And those, those experiences that I had, I actually think I was able to bring uh, to being a judge. So it's, it, I tell law students, Look, you'll have a lot of opportunities. Take the path not traveled, or take the difficult path, because it will make you a different person. And if what you want to be is a judge, it's great to have different experiences. It's great to have your experiences. It's great to be able to relate to people, and uh, especially as a trial court judge. And uh, the only way you're going to relate to people is to have had different experiences. And that's what I think qualifies a person to be a judge. What year did you, each of you become judges? What, when did you be, be, So, when we first became judges? Yeah. Gosh, a long time ago, 1999? Oh, well, that's great, 98. So, have the pressures on you changed since, has the environment in which you're judging changed noticeably to you uh, in the last 20 years? I'd say absolutely. How so? Uh, I think, uh, and I guess my greatest concern is that the judiciary become polarized. Uh, 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 you know, it's, it's very, very dangerous uh, that the courts start to take positions that appear to be partisan positions. Uh, uh, that's, that will be more destructive of the judiciary and the rule of law than anything that I can see. So I am alarmed. Uh, by it. Uh, I have some of my, my colleagues here. I know my colleagues. My colleagues will not do that. My colleagues will try to call the call them as they see them. Call the balls and strikes. That's what we do. Is, uh, Actually, what I meant was more, is more when you walk into the job to do, and you sit in the, sit in the chair, um, do you, do you, are there different pressures on you now than there were 20 years ago? Do you feel watched in different ways? Do you feel scrutinized? Do you feel criticized? Do you, are you wor worried about different things? Well, I think the, the dialogue has changed and the conversations have changed. I mean, I became an appellate judge in about 2001. I wrote an opinion, maybe the newspaper picked it up in Houston and that was it. You know, maybe they had, they, they rarely praise occasionally, but you know, if they want to criticize it, it's there. Now I wake up and I go to Twitter, because that's the first thing I do in the morning, and there it is. And so as the judge, uh, you know, so that, that brings stress. So I'm being criticized, you know, in Kentucky or wherever. <laughs> so we just stop here for a minute. You tweet. Yes, at Justice Guzman, just in case you <laughs> <laughs> Do you tweet? No. Now, I, I so have no social media, and it, uh, I have no social media skills. I have, how do you uh, know if you haven't done it? You might be a you I, might Because be a, I wouldn't even know how to do it. Right. I mean, I have to phone, I have to, I have to phone my son uh, to connect the telephone or something. I mean, it's, it's terrible what I am. I'm a, I'm a you know, a, a sort of a, this antediluvian skills. Uh, and uh, uh, so I can't really do anything. But... 
I will tell you that yeah. I do tell ju that judges are really discouraged uh, from engaging in uh, social media. Interestingly, I just was away for, for four weeks, uh, just traveling, having a great time, bicycling and so forth, and we decided as a group not to read the paper, not to watch TV. And you know, I felt better uh, 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 because there's nothing you can do about it, right. you see. And, and uh, uh, it's a good idea to detach yourself from all of this. But there's also an argument for not being too detached. I mean, wait, let me just stop you. So you said you said judges are 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 um, there's, there's, they're asked. It's they're, it's frowned upon. Yes. But you do it. But it's, a, but it's a different situation because you're you're. I mean, you're an elected official. You have to. It would be political malpractice for you not to engage with your audience. Uh, but but is it? Uh, what's the argument for? You know, I think the public. It gives the public an insight into the judiciary. When you think about the public's confidence in the judiciary, it may be at an all-time low. It certainly is among minority communities. Civics, as you know, civic education, you know, people just don't know. They don't know who's on the Supreme Court, you know, how many judges are in a court, what judges do. Their idea of judging is Judge Judy. I mean, you know, that sort of thing. And so when you're on Twitter, when you're accessible, the public gets an insight uh, that, that they wouldn't otherwise have. They see the process, they see you, they, they hear your, your voice. And at the Supreme Court, you know, all of our oral arguments are on the web. You can tune in live, you can watch it later. It's scary when you're the judge. And there's a teacher t-shirt that, that I think says, if my mouth doesn't say it, my face will. And that's sort of <laughs> me on the, on the video on the court. So I really work on, you know, that stoic face. But um, that again, it's the public having an opportunity to see their courts at work and to understand a little bit more about what judge, what kind of questions do we ask? You know, we've had issues come up involving religious issues or gay marriage, and it, the public gets a chance to see what kind of questions the judges are asking. How do you feel about that, Chuck? Well, I, I am in favor, actually, of uh, cameras in the courtroom. Uh, in particular types of cases, very controversial. Uh, but uh, uh, I was very disappointed that the Prop 8 case uh, wasn't broadcast. Uh, that would have been the greatest learning experience uh, that the American public could have had about, uh, about uh, gay marriage and, and myths that surrounded it and process to develop what is the evidence of this idea and that idea. And regrettably, it wasn't, it wasn't broadcast. I think, like our Supreme Court, like your Supreme Court, they do broadcast the arguments. The Ninth Circuit broadcasts arguments. I think it's a good idea. Uh, you know, there are concerns, uh, privacy concerns or concerns about protecting witnesses and so forth. But you address it on a case-by-case -case basis. Right. You just don't have an ironclad rule. Uh, that's You're just saying that you that public approval of the judiciary is at an all-time low, and that's how do you how is that how is that affecting your lives? I mean, do you find are you on the receiving end of hostility, criticism, pressures that maybe you wouldn't have been? That's just part of the job, and the public has a right to voice disagreement. Um, in fact, we should listen to 
voices that are different from our own voices. It, I wish that as a society, we engaged in more conversations with people who don't think like us, with, with people with different ideas. But one thing that came from this, this idea that the public um, doesn't have um, a lot of confidence in the judiciary was a, a summit that I put together in Texas. And it's a summit uh, that, that the theme was the implicit bias in, in the justice system. So I invited Professor Ruklinski from Cornell to come down. I had about four or 500, the court did, I, I led it, but it was a Supreme Court um, initiative. We had about four or 500 stakeholders prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges. Um, that was right after the seven police officers had been um, killed in Dallas. We had the wife of one of those police officers there. We also had um, some of the folks that, that had experienced the police brutality, a, a man who'd spent um, 20 years in prison wrongfully, wrongfully convicted. The system had failed him. So that's how the judiciary can respond to concerns about confidence in the justice system. And, and that, so that was one thing I did that, that I'm very proud of in Texas. It's interesting. The, you know, the, the, uh, we've moved, we're clearly out of an, an earlier era where the judge could sit behind the robes and hide and, and, be, and, and nobody paid too much attention to who he was as a person. And that, you can't do that anymore. You can't, you can't hide anymore. And you can't hide specifically, generally, the, the, and this is one of the things we kind of explored in the, the podcast, was, was everybody's aware of human error. Everybody's aware that, 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 that human beings, are, that there's, there's cognitive bias. There's, um, have you had to adapt to the growing awareness of your own fallibility? I mean, have you had, have you had, Training, for example, in 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 cognitive bias. Have you? Well, what what yeah. has been the response well, to defend Jeremy, yourselves? Jeremy Fogel is a, is a was a great leader of the Federal Judicial Center, which put an emphasis on uh, making judges aware of such things as implicit bias. And we now have fashioned uh, uh, videos that we show jurors, prospective jurors, and we give them examples of implicit bias so that they're aware of it. We have fashioned instructions that we give, I give and my colleagues give, uh, both uh, uh, before jury selection, after a jury has been selected, but, uh, but before the evidence, and finally at the conclusion of the case. So that people are aware, you know, you, the, the irony of implicit bias is you have to say, do you, do you believe in implicit bias? Of course not. Of course I don't. I'm not biased. <laughs> Just ask me. And uh, 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 the problem is, it's implicit, and you have to make people aware of these problems. And I think that that's something that now the courts are very aware of. And and, uh, and I think it, I think jurors I mean, want like, to be honest. What kind know? of training do you have? Does one get to be a judge? I mean, when you get the job. What do people do to make you, to, 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 how, do you how, does someone, how do you learn how to do it? What is, uh, what's required of you in the way of, are you, you get given the robe and you just climb into the chair and start doing it? You're the baby judges school. All so right. most judges go you know, to a week, you go away for a week and, 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 you, and you do that. Um, I went back to try to be a better appellate judge. I went to Duke Law School. They have a judicial LLM. Um, I spent two and a half years in that program, but um, I, I think judges have to work at it. And part of that, you know, every state has mandatory 
training, you know, mandatory continuing education that you do. Um, if you're a smart judge, you recognize what you don't know, and and you ask the right people. You you do the re you do the research. You continually work to improve yourself, and, and one way to do that is to ask a lot of questions. Are you ever presented, do you have feedback the way, I don't know, NBA referees have now, where you get, you get your errors played back to you so you can see the mistakes you made, and, and so you can improve? That's called, it's the, called the appellate court. <laughs> <laughs> That's good All right, well, so how does that, so, so you, get, you, you, get a, you do get to see your mistakes. Well, you get to see, we, we, there's a tendency to bury some of these mistakes, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, 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 I think there are a lot of types of feedback and a lot of types of instruction. Of course, you have baby judges, school, and so forth. But one of the great resources that you have are other judges, are the colleagues of your court. And if you are lucky enough to be in a collegial court, and uh, we are, uh, where we will have lunch uh, frequently uh, uh, four or five times a week together, uh, where we discuss problems, where you can walk down a hall and go into another judge's chambers and say, what am I going to do? What, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? It's that constant feedback from other people uh, that, that give you an insight and change your behavior. It actually changes your behavior. Uh, uh, so I think that that's extraordinarily valuable. But it is only as valuable as having a bench that's diverse, that will, that will uh, uh, make you aware of different problems. Because it is the You're fact, right. my life, I wasn't aware of all the, I mean, you could, it's a great contrast because I wasn't sensitive to, uh, uh, to all these things. I, I just had my uh, 60th high school reunion. And just before I, I went to it, I read Rosa Parks's uh, 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 story of how she was arrested in Birmingham. She was arrested when I was a freshman in, at high school in San Francisco. And I guarantee you nobody in San Francisco was aware of, the, uh, that I was aware of, was aware of that injustice. So you've got to have a diverse bench. You've got to have people who've had different experiences because that's what you, that's how you learn. That changes your behavior. Did, is it, this is getting back to the original question, but um, has anybody ever pointed out to you a mistake you've made where you went, oh my God, that was a mistake? Yes, here. All right. I sentenced somebody, and I'll tell you a bit why. It's, it'll, it may be interesting. I don't know whether it is or not. It's already interesting. I, I, <laughs> sentenced, I sentenced somebody to whatever it was. It was a lengthy sentence. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I knew it was a mistake. And I walked off the bench, and I got to the door, and I turned to my courtroom deputy, and I said, bring them back tomorrow. I want to change the sentence. It is just terrible. Well, the law is, every now and then you have to look at the law. The law is <laughs> that you can't change it after you've, is that right? after you've left the court. You're not allowed to change your mind. You cannot change it. It's called sentencing remorse. You can't, you just can't do it. But I did it anyway, seated in my court, <laughs> yeah, this, this is terrible, but I did, I, you know, seated in my courtroom was a United States attorney at that time, a fellow named Bob Mueller. I've heard of him. So he's sitting there, and I'm changing this sentence, right? Yeah, I just change it. I said, well, I meant to say 38 months, not 
48 months or whatever it was, you know, da 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 and I walked off the bench. About a week later, I saw him in the elevator. And he said, oh, that was very interesting. He said, it's very interesting. He said, uh, some question is whether or not you had jurisdiction to do that. I said, I can understand that reasonable minds might differ on that issue. <laughs> he said, well, you know what? We're not going to appeal you because we think you came out with the right answer. So, uh, yeah, that's called sentencing remorse. Yeah. I made that mistake, <laughs> and Bob Mueller has been correcting my mistakes for years. <laughs> so, Ava, have you ever had, a, ever had a moment where you where you realized that something you'd done you wished you hadn't done? You know, I think I, I, as a trial judge, there, there may be those moments that, that may come more frequently on the appellate court. It's a little different. You know, we don't decide these cases in a vacuum. Uh, you have, you know, the briefs, the oral arguments, the lawyers come and present their cases, you have your colleagues that weigh in, then you have these law clerks right out of law school with great ideas about what the law is or ought to be. And so you don't decide them in a vacuum, you talk, you have these conversations, um, and you have an opportunity, you know, you can issue an opinion. I've had very few. They can file what's known as a motion for rehearing, and you can actually, we don't have remorse about these things. <laughs> you, you can actually change, and the court has in the past, and I have in the past actually changed my mind on rehearing. It doesn't happen that often, but you realize you made a mistake. Judges are not infallible. There are times when you just got it wrong, and that's when you'll see those rehearings granted. I'd like, do you, um, uh, you were sitting down with someone who wanted to be a judge and you were ready to evaluate whether they were actually suited for this, what would you look for in a person? What makes someone good at it? In my view, a commitment to public service, uh, a, a commitment to fairness and to impartiality. It, there's a certain skill set. Ideally, if you're going to be a trial judge, you want someone who's actually been in the courtroom. And to tell you that, I was thinking about this story because it was so different in the... Um, early 90s, my first jury trial by myself, I was so nervous, and it was in a small rural county in, in Texas, and the judge says to the opposing counsel, Mr. So-and-so, I'm gonna take Ms. Guzman back, and we're gonna pray. I'm, I'm gonna open the Bible, and we're gonna read some scripture before closing arguments. Now, you can join us, or you can stay right here. <laughs> so the judge and I went back, and we prayed, and I won the jury trial. But <laughs> that's how different it was in the beginning, and you couldn't do that now, and you wouldn't want to do that now, but you could back then. <laughs> I would say what's the, uh, a couple of things that are important in addition to uh, <laughs> having the Lord on your side. Uh, 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 and I don't know too much about that, to be truthful. But uh, uh, I think that uh, you have to have uh, the ability and a willingness to make decisions. Now, I'm talking about a, basically a trial judge. Uh, if you don't like making decisions, if you're one of these people who says, well, on the one hand, there's this, and on the other hand, there's that, and I don't know, and so forth. Look, we're paid to make decisions. I mean, paid, not paid, but we, we're there to make decisions. That's number one. Number two is don't have an agenda. Just listen to the evidence. I can't tell you uh, how many times my mind has changed after listening to the evidence. It's just great. And why I love my job, and I do love it, 
It's because it's exciting, because it's filled with unknowns, because uh, it's intellectually interesting, because it can make a difference in people's lives. It really can. So all of that fits as long as you have the temperament, one, to make decisions, and two, don't become so invested in your opinion that you're not going to listen to whatever the evidence is. All right. This courtroom is adjourned. Great. So, thank you. Well, this court is now in session, and that one was a tough act to follow, but we have a panel of extraordinarily distinguished former judges, and are hoping that all of you can reveal a side of judging that the sitting judges were not able to reveal. The Judicial Code of Conduct prescribes what a sitting judge can say, so I want to start with the toughest case that each of you has decided, and take us inside your decision-making process to reveal the human cost and the way that you struggled with it. Uh, Jeremy, Judge Fogel, you have described uh, the California lethal injection case, Morales and Tilton, as the most challenging case you ever decided. You said it required, demanded the most of me, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, of any matter that has ever appeared on my docket. Take us inside your thought process and describe emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually what it was like to decide that case? Well, I, I don't want to take up all the time. Uh, <laughs> but <clears throat> I, would, I wrote that in a, in a law review article uh, a number of years ago, and I would uh, adopt every word of it today. Um, so this case involved the protocol that California was using at the time to carry out executions. And the... Um, issue was actually quite narrow. The question was whether the uh, protocol, the, the, the drugs that were used to carry out the executions were performing properly. And the um, showing that was made by the plaintiff was that, that it wasn't, that there had been uh, 13 executions and that there had been problems in a majority of them that were demonstrated by, uh, by basically undisputed evidence. Um, and so uh, I was faced with this decision where I had to decide whether to allow an execution to proceed. And the uh, defendant in the, in the capital case, the plaintiff in my case, uh, as most capital cases are, uh, the crime was absolutely horrific. Uh, and uh, the evidence was very, very strong. There was no question about whether he was guilty. Uh, nor was there really any question as to whether the death sentence was appropriate given a death penalty, and I'm not going to go into that moral issue now, but just the criteria that were, were in place at the time. But there were problems with the protocol, and uh, there was pretty compelling evidence that there were problems with the protocol. And so um, I needed to do something about that because the problems in the protocol would have resulted in anybody being executed under it, being exposed to a level of suffering that the state stipulated was unconstitutional. It was not a question of my beliefs. It was actually an undisputed fact. Um, and um, so I stopped the execution. And then there was proceedings for quite some time after that, uh, trying to figure out what the remedy was going to be. And then a lot of other stuff happened, and there haven't been any executions since then. But 
but, but, but the point is that um, my job in that case was to decide a very discreet issue, which was, was there an unconstitutionally great risk of uh, suffering that violated the Eighth Amendment? And what happened in the actual event was that it was seen by the public as a case that had to do with whether the death penalty is a good thing or not, whether uh, Mr. Morales, the plaintiff, deserved to die or not, whether the victim, Terry Winchell, had uh, d deserved retribution for what had, what had happened to her. And that's what everybody got excited about. And there was a firestorm that was all about that stuff and had nothing to do with the decision that I made. And I had to live with that. Um, I, I was saying in the, in the green room that I'm so grateful that it happened before anybody had heard of social media, uh, that um, I got some nasty mail, no question about that. I got some letters saying that I was an idiot and so forth, and I got some, some, uh, um, some email, there was email then, and I got some email saying essentially the same thing. Uh, but, you know, it was a couple hundred letters and emails. And, you know, today, if I had made that decision, or if, he, or if uh, social media had existed then, uh, there would have been millions, I, I assure you, millions of, of responses. Uh, there would have been death threats. There would have been, uh, there, there, were, there were colleagues, uh, of, former colleagues of mine in the federal courts who had that type of response decisions they made in cases which were met much less incendiary than the case I decided. But even so, um, I was afraid to leave my house for several days. Uh, there certainly was um, a level of trauma that I experienced that it took me a while to work through. Uh, actually, writing the article that uh, Jeff quoted um, helped me work through that because it was really reminding myself that that's my job, you know, and people could disagree with the decision I made or not, but, but it was from the beginning, it was about what the law required. Uh, it wasn't about how I feel about the death penalty. It wasn't about how I feel about Michael Morales. And so, you know, I had to come back and anchor myself to the, the, the reason why I was doing the job. And, and, and Justice Guzman and, and, and Judge Breyer said it absolutely perfectly, I think. You know, the, the, your job is to decide the case based on the facts and the law. It's not to stick your finger in the wind and figure out what the public wants, and it's not to go off in, in, in directions that, that don't have anything to do with the case before you. Uh, so, you know, one of the, I'll just finish by saying, you know, a, a couple years later, somebody, uh, a group of people who don't like the death penalty, uh, wanted to honor me, you know, for making this decision. And I, I said, I really wish you hadn't, I wish you wouldn't do that. Because I didn't make my decision because of any feeling I have about the death penalty. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a decision I made because I'm a judge who's, trying his best to follow the law. So, so that um, was and still is the hardest case I've had. Justice Marino, you were the sole dissenter in the Prop 8 case where the Supreme Court, the, the, the court upheld the uh, anti-gay marriage proposition, and you made that decision at a time when you were being considered for the Supreme Court by President Obama, which made the decision especially courageous. Describe whether that played any role in your decision and how you dealt with what you must have known would be considerable pushback? Well, I mean, absolutely, absolutely not. It didn't uh, impact uh, how I 
felt about that case. I'd actually, <clears throat> the matter had been already argued before us some, some months before that period of time when I was on the, on the short list. Uh, and I felt uh, very strongly uh, about affirming uh, our earlier decision in the marriage uh, cases, finding the family code statute to be uh, unconstitutional. What was difficult about my position was not so much the, the public exposure, but to find a way that I could, in a principal way, uh, find that the a measure of Proposition 8 itself was unconstitutional. So together with my various law clerks, uh, I had written earlier about the distinction between an amendment and a revision to the Constitution. I mean, judges uh, are obligated to follow the Constitution, and if you recall in this case, the Constitution had been amended by Proposition 8, so therefore I was obligated to follow the Constitution. So in that sense, my hands were tied, but the uh, device, if you want to call it that, that I used was that there were so many rights, constitutional rights that were implicated uh, in that proposition, whether it's the right to, to privacy and so many other, uh, the right to marriage and so forth, that the only way that the Constitution could properly be amended uh, was by a constitutional uh, convention. Uh, so uh, I didn't get any votes, uh, but uh, uh, I think I just had to stick with that uh, with that decision because I thought that the, the constellation of rights that were implicated by Proposition 8 was not the, the right way to really fundamentally change that fundamental right. So, you know, I just wanted to say something about the death penalty, though, because on, on the court, you know, I probably participated in about 200 death penalty yeah. uh, decisions. Most of them were affirmances. Uh, so you do develop uh, kind of an attitude towards uh, cases, and as Jeremy pointed out, generally, uh, you see the worst of the worst. I mean, there are disparities from county to county uh, in California, but uh, putting those aside, uh, the main concern uh, I had about the death penalty, and I can say this uh, now because I, I, I joined a rebuttal uh, statement in one of the elections, I think it was 2012, and, and my position was that you know, for the expense that uh, these uh, appeals and the habeases in federal court and state court go through, the lack of uh, deterrence, the disproportionality of you know, who you kill and where you live and where, you know, all of that stuff, and then the lack of uh, trained attorneys uh, who can really handle that specialty of death penalty appeals and habeas. Uh, even Chief Justice Ron George and others have said the system was dysfunctional and broken. So my opposition to the death penalty in that ballot statement was basically addressed to that. But in terms of uh, another trial, there might be trial defects as well. But putting those aside, I mean, I had some concerns about certain trial defects I don't need uh, to go into, but that was the principal reason that I was uh, against the death penalty. But when you mentioned the, the most difficult case, and I think some of the federal judges would, uh, trial judges would appreciate this, the cases that I actually struggled with were the, uh, 
uh, illegal entries uh, with, the, with the two prior, two predicate felonies, and sentencing uh, someone who came to this country when they're like two years old, didn't speak Spanish, no relatives in, in, in whatever Latin American country they were from, and here they are, they have a family that's in the audience, and then the guidelines require, at least at that time, we didn't really have a uh, early disposition uh, program uh, in the Central District, I think San Diego did. But, you know, to sentence someone uh, to eight years, I think I sentenced someone for eight years in, in federal custody only to be deported, he'd be deported to a country that he really had absolutely no memory, no connection to whatsoever. I mean, I had to follow the law, I mean, I could depart in some, you know, rational way, but not, not, not a lot to make a difference. So to me personally, those were actually the most difficult sentencing decisions yeah. I had to do. Wow. Uh, Judge Ta, you had an extraordinary range of cases from Eighth Amendment cases examining whether exposure to secondhand smoke is cruel and unusual punishment to some really important equal protection cases involving domestic violence. What was the toughest? And really, was there a case in which you feared that you were not separating your political from your constitutional views where you might be succumbing to fear of public criticism and where you really struggled to make the right decision? Uh, well, this is where you're probably not aware of your own implicit biases, because I'd say no to the answer to your question is no, but I, to your the original question that you ask, and I think uh, in an eye into the process that a judge follows, I'll tell a story on myself, Eighth Amendment story. Again, death penalty story in our circuit. Uh, the states all had the death penalty along with the federal government. I was a very new judge, and it goes to what some of the panel before us said too. There's, there's baby judge school, but there's learning to be a judge, and there's a big difference. Uh, I had a very difficult uh, death penalty case as the panel author. And I followed the state involved was Oklahoma, as a matter of record. Uh, I followed the line of cases uh, on whether the death penalty was appropriate, and their um, standard was whether it was heinous, atrocious, and cruel. And so I followed all the cases, and we did a really good compendium of the outcomes of all those cases. And in the panel opinion, I affirmed and upheld the death penalty. My court voted to rehear the case to the point that was made earlier. And I changed my position and I wrote the in-bank opinion going the other way. And here's why, it's a matter of process. I took all those cases, every single death penalty case, from um, the state of Oklahoma up to that moment. And we dissected the facts of those cases individually, case by case, to see whether the state courts, this was a habeas, see whether the state courts had uniformly applied the same standards to the same set of facts. So that for months I had a law clerk and I, who were working on this table of what the facts were. So it wasn't only a matter of following the cases. I finally, in the end, decided 
we have got to go delve into the facts of these cases, and the in-bank opinion came out the other way. So to your original point, and that's an example of how judges work behind the scenes. Uh, it was because of the in-bank rehearing process, a lot of discussion among the judges. Uh, I'd challenge anybody to be in a harder meeting of any group, anywhere, than an in-bank rehearing uh, meeting of a court of appeals, and I assume the Supreme Court, but uh, I've only seen the court of appeals. They are the most thoughtful, careful, non-emotional, um, law-related discussions there are. So what the public doesn't see about the decision-making process is it is made better by the quality of the court and the quality of what is insisted upon before you come to a final decision. So that one was hard. The secondhand smoke one, I gotta just say, I got reversed at the Supreme Court. This was, this was before we really knew how bad smoking was, but it's another example of how um, uh, uh, the court works together. It was a garden variety, pro se uh, case, and I wrote a really short opinion saying, uh, um, putting a smoker with a non-smoker in a cell is not a violation of the Constitution, duh, at the time. Well, one of my colleagues said, you know, Danielle, I think we better look at this. You know, there's some evidence out there, and this was a pro se, so you have to construe liberally and all those things. And so, um, well, fast forward, we held that, it, uh, we continued to hold that it was not a violation of the Constitution. And guess what? Uh, it turned out to be a violation of the Constitution. And I got all kinds, to the point of long before social media, I got the funniest, funniest cartoons and letters. One of them was the warden of the prison with a napkin over his wrist saying, would you prefer smoking or non-smoking? <laughs> so the process itself works very, very well when you work in a collegial court and you put your colleagues to the test of what the evidence is, what the law is, all of those things. So, so there's kind of two examples. Great. Well, uh, Jeremy, unsurprisingly, since we picked the judges, so far the audience has uh, examples of models of reason rather than passion, both current and former judges resisting pressures and making the right decisions. But you've had a bird's eye view on the inner life of judges. You've taught them and uh, described the role of a judge as closer to a clergyman than uh, anything else, the need to set aside your ego to be governed by the truth. What I want to just ask you candidly is, do you believe that the pressures of social media are, as Judge Breyer said, polarizing judges, leading them to seek the approval of the crowd, sometimes making the popular decision rather than the wrong one? And give us a, some sp a specific example or two of cases where you think that actually is happening. Yeah. So let me answer your question this way. I don't think it's quite as linear as that. Uh, I don't think I certainly don't know of any judges who wake up and read Twitter and then they just figure out that's how they're going to decide their cases that day. I don't think, I don't think it works like that. But, but, I, but I do think that what's happened is that it's harder and harder to insulate yourself from what's going on in the, in the community. And, and you don't even have to be a Twitter follower. I mean, I am. I don't, I don't tweet, but I, but I follow. And 
and you know, you, you see the stuff people are saying and you see the, the ways people are perceiving things. And I think somewhere it, it embeds itself in your, in your consciousness. And then you see things happen to people, and I, I need to mention a couple. Um, so, you know, the, the uh, travel ban cases, uh, of which there were several, uh, but the first one was decided by, by Judge Robart in Seattle. Um, and just because it seems relevant to say this, Judge Robart was appointed by George W. Bush. He's a Republican. Uh, so he wasn't somebody who's always one of those, those liberal activist judges, and he's not. But he decided this case, and he, he decided it against the administration. And he got, in a relatively short period of time, over a million uh, uh, hits on Twitter and other social media, basically suggesting that he was a traitor. Uh, there were people threatening his life. Uh, some of the death threats were credible enough that uh, the marshals uh, had to provide security for him. Uh, and I've talked to him, he's a friend, and, and you know, he said it was incredibly traumatic for him to, to have gone through that experience. And, and all he did was, and, if you, and actually his, his hearing was um, videotaped. They, they, in the Ninth Circuit, you can have cameras in the courtroom. So his hearing is actually, there's a video available of it. And, and you can watch it, and at least from my perspective, you know, and I know that I'm looking at it as a former judge, you know, it was, he was a model of decorum. He listened to everybody. He was very careful. He was very thoughtful. Everybody had a chance to make their arguments. And so I'm watching this thing. This is great. I mean, people should see this because this is what judges actually do. And that didn't stop people from just pillaring him on, on social media. And it had an effect on him. And he's a federal judge with life tenure. So then you go to the state courts. We haven't really talked about the state courts. We have a federal heavy group here, although Justice Guzman is a state court judge. And, you know, then you're talking about people who don't have that protection. They have to stand for election in most states. Uh, they, they're in smaller communities. I mean, particularly judges in small counties, uh, you know, where you can't go to the grocery store without running into somebody who knows you uh, as a judge. Uh, and, and, and then you add social media to that, and there's literally is nowhere to hide. And you have people who don't understand what you're doing. So it's a real problem, and I think that it is an added stressor for particularly state court judges, uh, but it's a stressor for federal judges too, to, to know that there's this chatter going on and that so much of it is not informed. And that's not to take anything away from the public's right to have opinions. I mean, we need to do a better job of explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it, but seems to me the fact is that, that there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation. So I'll just mention one other case. Since I already mentioned one very controversial case, I'll mention another one. It's not one of my cases. It was a case that happened in San Jose, which is where my, my, my life was, uh, until I went to the Federal Judicial Center. And we had a, a judge on the Superior Court there who decided the, the Stanford Swimmer case. It got international attention. Um, and who ended up being recalled. Um, because he had made this decision that was perceived as being too lenient. Um, I'm not going to weigh in on this. I mean, I will say, because, you know, I'm being candid, and I can be now, you know, I would have given a different sentence. I would have given a more severe sentence than he did. But, but that's irrelevant to the point I want to make, which is that the, the case became about 
how do you feel about sexual assault? That's what the case became about. Just like my case was, how do you feel about the death penalty? It became about how do you feel about sexual assault? We need to make a statement that the treatment of people who commit sexual assaults is too lenient. And this is the way we're going to make the statement. We're going to hold this judge accountable for giving a sentence that was recommended by the probation officer, was within the legal range. He articulated reason. There was nothing from a legal standpoint wrong with what he did. And it, it raises a question of what we're doing, right? I mean, what, where is the line between judges making decisions based on the law and the facts and then the public's desire in a, in a given case for a particular outcome? And I, I think that's an incredibly stressful place for judges these days, particularly judges who have to stand for election. Uh, and I think it's been amplified enormously by, by social media. So that's my answer. Well, yeah. Add, yeah. add to yeah. that, since I've yeah. <laughs> served on both the, the state bench and the uh, federal bench, uh, one of my predecessors on the uh, California Supreme Court, Justice Otto Kaus, famously said, uh, it's hard to ignore the crocodile in the bathtub while you're shaving. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so, and that was before social media. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, by and large, I think my colleagues would agree. I mean, I mean, judges, you know, bring a certain, I mean, they, they bring a, a degree of integrity and fidelity to the law, and they decide on basis of principles and legal principles uh, and so forth. Uh, so I don't have any qualms about that. But I think what's happened in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, let's say, is there's a perception now that uh, judges are, are predisposed based, for one example would be based on uh, who was the executive, the governing authority that appointed them. I mean, there was an election here in San Francisco. Uh, it didn't matter if the judges were actual Democrats or, or Republicans, but if they were appointed by a Republican, a group from a certain office opposed those, those judges just on the basis of that uh, perception. So perception now seems to control the day. And, and the general public, I mean, they do look at Judge Judy, of course, but they look at, uh, they think that judges are partisan uh, and that they're gonna, they come to cases uh, uh, predisposed to rule a certain way. And I think that's, that's not true. It's completely inaccurate. Judge Tom, um are, uh, should, should judges tweet? Let's set a, state uh, judges, uh, state, not. state, <laughs> you, you said absolutely. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, but is there, a difference, is there a difference between the state and federal bench in that regard? State judges have to be politically appointable, as Justice I, Guzman said? And you know, I, at least in California, uh, I don't think there's really, in the, the code of conduct would, would, would ban or prescribe uh, judges tweeting even, even I'm a, now a, 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 an arbitrator, and one of the questions in the forms, the disqualification forms we fill out, are, are, are we active on, on Facebook or any other kind of social media? Because lawyers now will, they'll search your whole history and your views and so forth, and that's all discoverable in litigation as well. So uh, I would eschew any kind of activity of a political or judicial nature on any kind of uh, social social media, because uh, in the line of work that I am now in, if 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 I were uh, presenting my views on social media, uh, a creative uh, lawyer who was unhappy with my one of my rulings could could claim that I was predisposed in the outcome of the case. 
uh, reflected that, that bias. Judge Taha, what do you think about tweeting judges? And I'll, I'll note that for, for James Madison, the idea of even tweeting presidents would have been anathema, because he said any direct communication between representatives and the people would encourage passion rather than reason. Judges are supposed to be even more insulated. Is there a danger that tweeting judges will play to the crowd and be susceptible to being swayed by the passions of the crowd? I'm sure that I fall into the Judge Breyer category of being of a certain age and not knowing how to do anything. But I will have to say, and easy for me to say because I have never been a state judge and have never had to run for election, but I believe whether you're a current judge or a, uh, or a former judge, you have a role to play in, in modeling for the rest of society what civilized discourse and, and civilized disagreement looks like. And allowing each side in a controlled environment to have its say is really important. And also this whole notion of judges being, because of who appointed them or being uh, partisan politicians, is it seems to me encouraged by every modicum of a judge take, taking sides before he or she has uh, heard the case, been involved in it, decided it. We have a job to do, and it is to say to the public, there is a third branch of government here, and the third branch of government takes a, an oath to follow the law. We do the best we can to come to the right result. Now, that does not answer the tweeting question, and my, my friend, Justice Guzman, I suspect doesn't tweet about the outcomes of cases or anything like that. I suspect, although now I'm going to have to figure out, I'll get some kid to show me how to look at her Twitter thing. Um, <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I actually do have Twitter on my phone. I almost never look at it uh, uh, for totally different reasons. Uh, I, I find it distracting. But uh, if anything verged in social media on calling into question the judge's view on a case or on attorneys or on litigants or the kind of issue involved or anything that verged on the substance, it would really be for me uh, the kind of thing that would at least challenge my understanding of the impartial judge. Yeah, let, so me just let, to that. let me just add to that, and that is that uh, you know, I don't. I don't think judges should be recluses or ciphers, and they're human beings. They should participate uh, in in society. But I do think we have. I think you were hinting at this, Danielle, is that uh, we have an obligation to do public outreach to educate the community, uh, students, law students, uh, the general community, the different uh, clubs that exist out there. So in that sense, we are public figures, and I think we have an obligation to educate the public on the legal system. I, I, I completely agree with that. And I would just say that I'm not sure we're doing it entirely the right way. Mm -hmm. that, that I think the civics education part of it is, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. I think it is important that people understand what, how judges are different from legislators or different from executive. I mean, I think that's, that's very important. I think it's great when students come to courtrooms and they see what judges are doing and they, you know, I had a junior high school class come to my courtroom 
number of years ago, and really what they were most interested in was the leg monitors that the, the people were being uh, given when they were put on supervised release. But, yeah. you know, that, sure. but, but I mean, at least they were getting a sense of, of you know, how, the, how, the, uh, how things work. I think what we're not doing, and really this had something to do with why we wanted to do this program, is we're not really telling our story and I think we're trying to do this tonight, and I think we're going to keep trying to do it. We're, we're trying to tell our story, but you know, this is a profession that we have. So I was very grateful to, for, to Michael for, for the podcast. You know, this is a this is a profession, and and the profession has principles. The profession has values, and every judge I know, uh, with very very few exceptions, and I've known thousands of judges, really tries to emulate the values of the profession. And some do better than others, but. I don't think the public really understands what those values are. And I think, I think to a large extent that's on us. You know, we don't do a good enough job of talking about well, what do we do and how do we do it and you know, what, what do we, what do, you know, and I think that's, that's a missing link. Can I, can yeah. I just ask you, we're gonna go to yeah. questions in a moment, but this is your, this is your chance because we yeah. held this program to yeah. educate the public. You talk about the need not only for spiritual integrity, setting aside your ego, but for mindfulness, mm. for tuning in during a sentencing hearing, not getting bored and distracted, but actually deep listening to the human stories in front of you. And now judges are confronted with these new pressures that are so polarizing our elected officials that our society is retreating into armed camps. So psychologically yes. and emotionally, what can judges do well, to maintain the ideals of impartial deliberation so that are necessary I'll, I'll, I'll to, for the future you, of the republic I'll, to survive? I'll, I'll send you my check for asking me that question. No, no, I'm, no, 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 no. I mean, this is this is really important. Yes, it is. You know, it's like so when we founded the Berkeley Judicial Institute. Uh, what are the three things we care about? One of them is ethics, and this, one of them is independence, and the other one is resiliency. It's, it's, the ability, it's what you're asking about. It's how do you keep judges psychologically healthy so that when, when they're dealing with this, these awesome responsibilities that they have, how do you keep them attentive enough and, and, and managing their stress and managing their emotions and, and being present for people so that, the, that they can do the job right, so that the people who come through the courtroom uh, uh, have a positive experience, have a sense that they were taken seriously and respected and listened to. I mean, this is what we aspire to. You know, we, we want people to have this experience of procedural justice and, and being respected. We also want to be able to take care of ourselves and not, and not burn out. And, and I think this issue of resiliency and, and what judges need to be resilient is enormously important. We're just really starting to get a handle on it. And, and I think, you know, mindfulness is part of it. Um, Self-care is part of it. Um, uh, just learning about active listening is part of it. Um, dealing with implicit bias is part of it. It's, it's, all, it's getting yourself right to do, to do the job and live up to the professional standards. Could I just yeah. add to that? Yeah. I th this is from somebody who's left the bench, so easy for me to say, but... Uh, I believe that in the name of, of being impartial and not have conflicts of interest and not violating the codes of ethics, to some extent, the judiciary, and I'm going to, this is a terrible generalization, has withdrawn a bit from the community. And for me, maybe the most important thing that a judge must do is remain in 
constant contact with the community outside the courtroom. It might be a 4-H club, it might be a Sunday school group, it might be your local hospital, it might be the homeless shelter. I don't care what it is. But I have seen numbers of judges who say, oh, I don't think I better be on that board. Or, and by the way, the Code of Ethics lets us be on educational and philanthropic boards. Uh, or for sure we can work in soup kitchens or whatever else it is. I have heard way too many colleagues across the country say, I just worry that I'm going to run into somebody or the newspaper is going to be there and da, 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 da. Wrong answer. I think one of the things that keeps us rooted, and one of the things that I think made me a better judge was I was <laughs> burning the candle at all ends, uh, working in schools, doing uh, all kinds of philanthropic work in my community. And as I reflect back on how I approached being a judge, I believe I approached it, I hope I approached it as a solid member of the community that when they saw me in the grocery store, they didn't just immediately think federal judge. They thought, oh yeah, she's on the board of the Arts Center, or she's working with the homeless shelter, or she... We have got to be identified with our communities along with our courts. Just Justice Moreno, yeah, just the last, last word before the questions, but I'll oh, just I, say, I just, I'll, just, I'll just note that you have talked very movingly about the support that the Latino community has given you yeah. at every stage in your career. And I want you to describe what is the right way for you to interact with that community in a way that avoids Please. being uh, uh, partisan, but nevertheless uh, sensitive to their needs. Well, you know, uh, a long time ago, a uh, a uh, drama school teacher uh, wrote in a book that I still have, I think as I was going off to college, he said, I think quoting Aristotle said, remember that you are a part of all who you have met. So, I mean, I come from a Latino community, working class background, et cetera, so that sort of uh, phrase always sticks in my mind that I came from these roots much like uh, Eva did, and uh, that's part of uh, who I am. And that leads me to the uh, question I wanted to answer. Uh, you know, uh, Please do. <laughs> uh, I, I heard uh, from the appointments, uh, judicial appointment secretary, Marty Jenkins, uh, he asked the Governor Newsom what are the qualities he wanted uh, in judges. You know, he laid out courage, uh, commitment to public service, intellectual capacity, uh, ethical behavior, humility, and other factors. They're all important. But then he said, uh, but what is, Governor, what is the most important uh, factor you want in the judges that you're going to appoint? And Governor Newsom said, humility. Mm -hmm. I think that's very telling, and it's along the lines of what you said. Humility, the Latin root is probably human. That mm -hmm. uh, we're all uh, human, we all have to be uh, humble, and you have to recognize uh, where you came from, uh, where you are, and your obligation to do, uh, to do justice. That is a wonderful quality to sum up. And uh, judges from Judge Hand to Justice Ginsburg uh, have noted that the spirit of liberty is the spirit that is not too sure that it is right. And humility is a quality much, uh, very elusive in our polarized time when both red and blue camps are so certain of their own premises that we've forgotten Justice Holmes's admonition that the Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view, and it gets to Jeremy's notion that ultimately it's a spiritual task of setting aside your ego, being open to others, and letting 
the light flow through you. We have time for one or two questions. Could I ask a, Please. a question here? I'm, I'm a trial lawyer, and I, I've been a trial lawyer for 36 years, both in California and in Justice Goodman's uh, jurisdiction where I started. And I've been sitting here increasingly feeling that I, I believe very much in the model of judging that I think the panel has described, and it's pretty consistent. Um, and it's, I think it's a vital thing, and our rule of law depends upon it. But it's been my experience increasingly over the last several decades that it doesn't fully fit the judiciary. Um, I would have assumed that judges decided the way you all have described when I started, but in areas including Texas, including the Fifth Circuit, um, where there's been decades of a very politicized selection process, uh, there also are judges who I would not characterize that way, and I think you could show from the results. And I worry greatly when I see all the normal checks and balances of federal selection uh, for the federal judiciary being discarded. So my concern is you've described a model of the best judges, but what do you see that's happening now? Because I don't think there's a culture so strong in the judiciary that it doesn't matter who gets appointed. You know, it'll then cure um, problems with the appointment. I think that's a fair question. I think it's a tr it's a troubling it's a troubling question, because um, I think the I think the the culture is strong. It's not so strong that it's going to get everybody. You know, you could always try to find people who don't care about it or who who have an agenda. And it goes back to what my friend Chuck Breyer said. I mean, it's very important not to have an agenda. We have life experience. And I think in, in every judicial selection process that I've ever seen and in, in they've ever read about, going back to the founding of the Republic, the, the life experience of judges makes a difference. I mean, you see it around the edges of their decision-making, you know, just how they see facts, what they think is important, how they, how they use their equitable powers. I mean, so you're going to get differences. <clears throat> but it's all within a framework of a, of a legal culture, of a process that we all are committed to. And so the fact that you have even significant differences uh, between, say, the Fifth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit. To me, that, that fact in and of itself is not uh, a bad thing. But I do think the premise of your question concerns me. If, when you start appointing people, not because they're going to be good judges, but because they're going to be committed to a particular agenda in an unswerving way, uh, yes, that concerns me too. Uh, now, whether uh, that is happening and whether that is happening to a degree that the strength of the judicial culture uh, won't turn it around, or that you know, the, just the political process over time will will correct whatever tendencies are there. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't look into the future. I think it is something we need to be very careful about, and I don't think it's it's something that you know. This is not about the current administration or some future administration. It's when when any president uh, starts to appoint judges solely because the president thinks that the judges are going to vote certain ways all the time, then we really are in trouble. And so I think it's, I think it's a reasonable concern to raise. Uh, I do maintain a certain degree of optimism. And I, I, one of the things I liked about the, the FJC job so much was I got to go everywhere. And, and just since you mentioned the Fifth Circuit, I spent a lot of time in the Fifth Circuit. And, and I think there's a lot of strength there. Uh, it, it's a much more conservative area than California. And it's going to be reflected in a lot of uh, a lot of decisions, but but I'm not ready to throw the whole thing out on the theory that it's hyperpartisan. And so 
I, I just think it's I just think it's it's a it's a good caution flag to raise. I'm not quite ready to raise the red flag yet. Can I just to, add one yeah. thing to yeah. that? I don't think it's only the executive. Uh, the legislative branch of uh, the Senate, uh, because of their role, has a role to play here in also modeling constitutional values uh, and understanding the difference between the legislative process and the judicial branch and its process. And I think for every citizen out there voting, when you are thinking about your candidates and talking to them, one of the issues is whether you're talking to them directly, not about the outcome of a judicial appointment, but rather about what judges should do and must do for the future, regardless of who the administration is. We only have checks and balances if all three branches work the way they're supposed to. Wonderful. Well, Jeremy, I am so grateful for this collaboration between the Berkeley Judicial Center and the National Constitution Center. Let us keep this uh, conversation going, take the show on the road, and continue to illuminate the human side of judging. Please join me in thanking our panelists. This conversation was presented in partnership with the Berkeley Judicial Institute at Berkeley Law. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. 